0: As we speak, uh, huge portions of New South Wales, Victoria are underwater during flood. It's, it's something to reflect on as we reach the end of, of 2022. Homes destroyed, thousands of people evacuated, stum, still homeless months on from, from last summer's drenching floods. A long trail of destruction and and the conversation quickly turns to prevention, dams, levees, mitigation, because one thing is certain, that the threat of flooding is real and ongoing. Solutions of some sort need to be found. Things, things like levees uh, must sound like a great idea for drenched or threatened communities, but what's the, what's the truth of that? And what happens when the levee breaks? Brian Cook uh, is an associate professor in the School of Geography, Earth and Atmospheric Science at the University of Melbourne. Brian, welcome. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Nice to be here. A a core of this, I guess, is the fact that we we quite love living by water.
1: Yeah. Well, who doesn't? I I mean, go down to the the local creek or the local pond or have an ocean view or a view of that water. There's probably something very evolutionary uh, in us. You know, we need to be close to water, food, water, shelter being what keeps us alive. So there's an innate desire, I think, in our evolution. But there's also the cultural significance of water, our desire to, to really embrace and enjoy that sort of environment.
0: And so many of our towns are built along rivers, and there are, there are, there are solid historical reasons for that. Um, but I guess increasingly that, that's catching us out.
1: Yeah, well, transportation and sanitation—you know—would have uh, originally been key drivers of where we placed our developments. It's certainly an issue that's affecting us now quite substantially, especially in this last year, um, with some places being flooded three and and perhaps four times. Mm. But it's an old problem, you know. I I was preparing for this discussion, and and there's a letter from Lachlan Macquarie in 1817 warning you know, settlers to to shift back from the floodplain in order to protect themselves. So, you know, human settlement and and colonisation of this continent goes hand in hand with flooding and the challenges that come with it.
0: Because those floodplains, I mean, they're they're paradoxical sites, aren't they? They're often very rich country, tremendous arable place, and and again, as we we began by discussing, you know, attractive because of water and yet uh,
1: increasingly
0: pose tremendous hazard.
1: And you've, you're spot on in that, that kind of assessment of the good and the bad. And, and the thing that comes with it too is, you know, they're bad 1% of the time or, you know, yes, like even less perhaps. Yeah. And so it becomes easier to not want to think about those moments when it's submerged compared to the the moments when it's providing you a livelihood or providing you cultural fulfillment or providing you economic goods. But those 1% of those moments when it's underwater can be life alteringly destructive. And,
0: and our response to this is often not to change our behavior, but to attempt to change the behavior of nature.
1: That's kind of my career, I guess, is where <laughs> <laughs> you've summed it up better than I've ever been able to. But the inclination towards a technical fix, this this desire for us to pour a bunch of concrete or straighten a river or dredge something or build a pipe or a pump or some sort of technical intervention, rather than us step back and reflect and kind of be a little self-aware and self-critical and ask ourselves, geez, you know, should we really be doing this? So it's it's very often not a question of whether we should, but whether we can. And historically, we've We've gone with, can, We've, we we love those technical f- fixes. And so we kind of build ourselves into the problem.
0: That's such an interesting way of looking at it because you create the technical fix and you leave yourself there in that position of vulnerability. You, you don't you know, remove yourself from the situation. You create a sense of security within it.
1: Yeah, yeah. What what are the old sayings? You know, you you make the rod for your own back, or you you're kind of uh, complicit in the the creation of the situation you find yourself in. And um, very famously, there's a, a flood researcher in 1945, Gilbert White, uh, working in the U.S. who who kind of coined or or popularized the term the levy effect, and it was this recognition of the the kind of surprise that comes with realizing that damages increase after we invest in flood mitigation. They don't decrease. And that really is counterintuitive. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It flies in the face of all of our desires for those technical fixes. But I think what we're seeing today is a contemporary materialization of what Gilbert was recognizing uh, several generations ago. Well, t- tell me back to
0: Gilbert White's work. I mean, wh- what was the the situation that, that he was responding to? What was he describing?
1: Yeah, floods in the Mississippi Delta. He, he He's a, a kind of legend in the flood risk management field. He worked for the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, advised governments, and was this person who was at a time when environmental management was very much a science, it was engineering, it was quantitative, he, he was someone who who looked at human behavior or began this kind of integrated or holistic assessment that also uh, included consideration for economics, for people and decision-making and governance. And so that really opened up a new way of thinking about flood risk that I that really lingers to the present. He's had an immeasurable impact on how we go about understanding flood risk. Although <laughs> a, a critic might say, we didn't really learn much from him because we seem to be <laughs> locked into this pattern where we keep building and we keep looking for those fixes all the while through land use change and climate change, the situation is worsening.
0: And, and the levy effect as he described, what happened in, in that instance?
1: He was looking at these large river basins and catchments and and masses of development on floodplains and our inclination towards structural mitigation. So the, the physical controls, often through embankments or levees. Other people did contribute. I shouldn't just give it all to him. What he noticed was when we built a protection, it actually encouraged others to invest in that area. And there were Numerous factors that drove that investment of capital into those flood prone locations. So there's there's economic incentives. So you you build where other people have built to take advantage of the services. There's other economic incentives in the sense of landowners who own land that's maybe kind of flood prone or risky, it's not very valuable. When we build a protective embankment, all of a sudden it becomes very valuable. So there's a a real profit motive underlying this uh, levy effect. There's the cultural and social factors that we mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago. And then you have also local government and local businesses and local councils who all want to encourage economic development and job creation and things of that nature in their region and and all of the benefits that come with that. So there's immeasurable and often hard to quantify forces that are all kind of pushing us to develop in these floodplain lake locations. And ultimately, the levy
0: fails. Is that a universal truth?
1: There's a a quite famous saying that, um, there's two types of dams or two types of levees, you know, those who have failed and those that will, or those that leak and those that will. And, um, you know, those kinds of sayings are, are poignant and, and, um, they cut to the bone because of that grain of truth at their center, because every structural intervention is designed And and therefore is designed to fail. You know, we build an embankment to a 1% flood or a 0.5% flood or, you know, depending on the terminology you want to use, a one in 100 year event or a one in 500 year event or a one in 200, whatever it is. And so when we go beyond that, when, when the natural environment produces, well, I don't want to go down that path, but when... The assemblage of the natural environment and our mitigation and our practices around it mm. produce higher flood levels than that one in 100-year event, then they overtop and they break. And that's what they're designed to do. If we spent our time since the construction of that embankment intensifying our investment in those flood-prone properties, then we get a whole lot worse uh, damages and costs and harm as a result of that.
0: You've mentioned Lachlan Macquarie, So our, our relationship with with flood in this country is, as, well, it's, it's ancient, but for post-colonial people is 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 deep and as long as that period. But the construction of things like levees, how how far back does that go? in? In Australian river culture,
1: local levees. I mean, the, the, they are as old as as settling in 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 Australia in a small scale, and even early towns would have would have experienced floods and would have responded. But I think if we're talking about contemporary flood risk and and flood management, the the period in the post Second World War is really where we can see this uh, assemblage of social, economic, political. And labor forces coming together in the post-World War period and that get, getting coupled with a mindset that said we can control nature. It would be my grandparents' generation, but it would be this. We've harnessed the atom. We've, you know, we've done all of these miraculous things through science and technology. Uh, a flood. Hey, we can control that. Let's build some structures. We've got massive dams all over the world to straighten this river, to remove this wood from the, the rivers, to build pumps, to build structures. That's within our capacity, and mm. therefore there was a real rise in this willingness to manage the environment with a, a pretty heavy hand and pour a lot of concrete. Lismore had a levee. Yeah, yeah. Ten metres, I think, it, uh, is, is, is what I saw. And they had a buyback scheme too. You know, like if you look at what Lismore has done, they've – they've tried almost everything to address flooding and and they're still going to experience flooding going forward. Can a levy in, in, in one place create problems in another? <laughs> Most certainly. I think if uh, if we were up in Achuka at the moment, standing on that makeshift levy that was constructed uh, in, in preparation for the flooding, there's obviously winners and losers in a very... Um, close geographic way there on either side of of those temporary embankments. And so Yes, most certainly embankments shift flows, they move water, they displace water, they upend the modeling, so it's harder to predict. And, um, you know, in the Victoria circumstance, there was the Comrie report that followed the 2010-2011 floods. And, and they, they highlight this kind of the role that levies play, and, and especially that temporaries levies can play when they are kind of rushedly... Inserted onto a floodplain. And I guess the conclusion drawn from that is they're kind of an agent of chaos. It's really hard to know exactly what that levee did or didn't do or the impacts that it had. It's very hard to know. Is there good international practice that we should look at? Good international practice. It, that's a, a fantastic question, Jonathan. You know, if we're looking at successful embankments, the Dutch are the ones who, yes. you know, have, have built <laughs> holders, but those are 10,000 year event polders you know so that's a oh, i'm going to get the math wrong on the radio but i think it's like zero, 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 one chance of happening every year and so that's very expensive holland is is obviously smaller than australia it has more concentrated wealth it has the ability to do that and so to to build to that standard is is not viable across most of australia i guess looking for successful uh, technical interventions into flooding. We could look to most developed world major urban centers. It's economical for us to protect uh, city centers. The assets that are there warrant physical control of waters and and the massive investments that are needed to build those sorts of embankments. It's when we transfer that willingness to control the river outside of urban centers, and mm. we get into kind of regional centers where you know maybe key assets like the water treatment plant or the electrical uh, generation stations uh, or the, the the small kind of CBD in a in a in a town could warrant uh, a high level of protection but when we transfer that willingness to protect outside of those areas I think we very quickly uh, start creating major problems
0: we have an issue too I guess I'm I'm, I'm, I'm... I'm flying a kite here, but I imagine there is a socioeconomic element here, in particular in regional communities where often flood-prone land is more affordable. Um, So we have communities who can least afford the disaster of inundation living in places most prone to it.
1: Yeah. I work with uh, Melbourne Water, and one of their more recent reports highlights the roles of renters, you know, who have for a long time kind of been a an afterthought in flood risk management. But when we're talking about household mitigation actions, it really doesn't make sense for a renter to invest capital in the protection of a home that they don't own. They're they're unlikely to reap the rewards of that investment. And similarly, when we subsidize risk mitigation for a landlord, we're, we're inadvertently raising the value of that property and perhaps pricing out those low socioeconomic renters. So there's a kind of double bind there, again, another of these kind of wicked elements to uh, uh, to, the, to the flood risk management, where our efforts to address risk result in it not being eliminated, but being transferred or mutated such that it affects someone else, typically someone in a lower socioeconomic state.
0: As described, Brian, a, a wicked problem, but yeah. what do we do?
1: <laughs> oh, the, the billion dollar question there. The first thing I would say is that if we are not engaging with the community, we have very little hope in being successful. And mm-hmm. so any sort of beginning to this is is about a discussion had with our communities in in an open manner. And I think Going back to what we said before, you know, appreciating that people have been making logical, rational decisions, and oftentimes we would have made the same decision in their space. But if I had to come up with a solution, then I, I would say something like this I would say, in urban cent- um for outside of urban centers, we, we have to move on from the 1% annual exceedance probability. We need to go to a 250-year event or a 500-year event if possible and stop being so permissive or using that 1% line as as if it stops the floodwaters. It doesn't. It, outside of urban areas, uh, for new builds, we, sh- we should just absolutely not allow construction in the 1% area. Or if we are going to allow it, it, it should be built you know to the 500-year event. We're going to run into legacy buildings, buildings that are already there. Yep. And I think for those, we need to divide between those that can be removed and those that can be retrofitted. And Grantham is a great example of a land swap where they've offered to allow people to swap their location for, for, lo- for land in, in less flood prone regions. And that seems to have been successful, although it hasn't had the uptake that, that I think most people would hope. And then I guess for urban locations, we should. We really do need to upgrade and keep those high level protections of a 500 year event or something while encouraging people to retrofit their homes for local flooding because we will have those flash events. And then I guess looking at Sydney and all of the news around them wanting to further encroach into flood prone areas, you know, raising dams isn't going to stop the next flood. Putting more homes in those floodplains will inevitably flood and you know, we're going to have those costs of damages, uh, flowing down our river systems. If, and if we put people in harm's way, we will definitely raise the cost to a point where I'm not sure how governments will respond. You know, they, they can only keep providing these sorts of funds for so long before I guess they run out of a willingness to buy out and, um, recover from these disasters.
0: Brian, thank you. Great food for thought.
1: Thanks so much, Jonathan. Brian Cook, Associate Professor
0: uh, at the School of Geography, Earth and Atmospheric Science at the University of Melbourne. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.